ends there in Philippians chapter 1 for now. Uh, we are continuing part 2 of a talk we began several weeks ago. It's the building a culture of evangelism. Remember we, we looked at the book and um, remember I brought five copies. This is the book, it's called uh, Evangelism. It's a very easy read, very uh, challenging, very encouraging read. I uh, brought five copies the last time, managed to sell three. Okay, so there's still two available. And remember, if you buy it from SKS, it will cost you $22, $23. But if you buy it today, the last two remaining copies, it will cost you only 15 Okay, so the three of you that bought it the last time, thank you so much. Uh, I know Mr. Lowe bought one copy. Okay, I uh, hope uh, it, it, it really proved to be an encouraging read. Okay, so we covered four of the ten points of what a culture of evangelism looks like. Okay, if you can't remember, these are the four points. A culture that is motivated by love for Jesus and his gospel. A culture that is confident in the gospel. A culture that understands the danger of entertainment. And the last one that we looked at the last time was a culture that sees people clearly. And the thing that, I guess, the the leaders, why we chose to spend two weeks looking at this is because this is something that we long to see. We long to see that in this place, in this local church, in this church family, uh, God would, by His grace, begin to build and grow such a culture uh, that the, you know, bit by bit as we pull together, bit by bit as we step forward in faith, such a culture would indeed begin to take root. Now, I think it is to the extent, according to the first point, that we truly know and appreciate and grasp and love Jesus and the gospel, that we will long for such a culture. Right, because this, this um, culture is not something that stands on its own. Right? It, it, it's, it's just a superstructure. Right? It, it needs a foundation on which to rest. And the foundation on which it rests must be love for Jesus, love for the gospel, and an understanding, a true grasp, a growing and deepening appreciation. You know, the, 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 the growing awe and wonder that we have of this is how great His love is. This is what He has done to save us. This is the depth of my sin and this is how God, the lengths to which He has gone to save me. So it must be that foundation of the gospel that such a culture is built. And it is God and God alone that grants anyone the grasp and deepening grasp of the gospel. So please, uh, let's ask God to help us as we come to Him. Father, I thank you that there is indeed the truth that in this room, many of us, by your grace, we have come to understand what you have done for us in Christ. For those who have yet to truly grasp and truly embrace the cross, but I pray that even through what we talk about today, what we sing about today, that you will lead them closer to understanding 
and placing their trust in the Lord Jesus. Father, for those of us who have come to understand, Father, it is only by your mercy and grace that we are still hanging on. It is the faith that you have given to us. And we pray, please deepen our faith. Please cause our knowledge and understanding and grasp of the gospel to grow. Please cause our trust in Jesus to grow. Not just Jesus as an idea, but as you open our eyes that we see more clearly who he is, as you allow us to know him more intimately and deeply. Father, that our understanding, this foundation of the gospel, may grow in us as a church, that indeed such a culture of evangelism may indeed uh, be able to grow and cause to be an instrument you use for many to come to know Christ. Father, we look to you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the fifth cultural point you can see in your outline is a culture of evangelism is a culture where we pull together as one. So you just look at the scripture reading. You see Paul thanking God for the Philippians and thanking God because right from the very beginning, from the first day until now, he says, they have had been in a partnership in the gospel with Paul. What is this uh, partnership in the gospel? Now, the word behind partnership is the word koinonia, and it is translated fellowship in other places. Okay, fellowship. Okay, so the word behind partnership is translated fellowship in other places. So, when we use the word fellowship, how do we use it? We will say, okay, after the service today, we will go downstairs and have some fellowship over cookies or over, you know, tahui chui and or whatever, right? We'll have fellowship. And when we mean, when we say fellowship, we mean Christians talking to one another, right? Now, Paul uses here that word, and it is translated not fellowship, but partnership. Now, partnership has a totally different feel to the way we use fellowship. Now, what is partnership? Partnership is actually a business word. Partnership is where you imagine a few of us, we come together, and we have a passion for making cakes. Okay, and so, you know, we decide to open a, a cake shop, and there are those among us who are good at baking, others among us who, who's good at marketing, you know, doing the website, doing the logo. And so, because we are in partnership together, okay, we are all contributing our gifts, our talents, we are pouring time, we are pouring money into this, and we have a common goal, common objective. We want to see this cake shop grow and be, you know, financially viable. See, this is the idea behind partnership. And Paul is using this word to say he thanks God for the Philippians' partnership, not in a cake shop, but a partnership in the gospel. So it's a partnership where everyone is pooling together. Everyone is pouring in time. Everyone is self-sacrificially pouring in money, effort, their gifts 
to see a common objective fulfilled. And the common objective is the advance of the gospel. So this is the culture where there is such a partnership in the local church, such a partnership in the church family where we are pulling together, where there is a common objective, where you are using your gifts, I am using my gifts, and we are self-sacrificially pushing, striving to see a common objective fulfilled, the advance of the gospel, Jesus, His name going out, people coming to faith. It's partnership in the gospel. So, if we are just having tea and talking about the weather and the latest movie, that's not partnership. That's not fellowship. It is a rich word, so I encourage us to use it uh, accurately. Okay, so let, let there be true fellowship at BTPC where we are pulling together, striving for the common objective. And so how would um, such a partnership look like? Um, If I bring a friend to church, because there is a partnership in the gospel, because we are pulling together as one, you don't automatically assume that the friend I brought is Christian. You know, it's happened to me, so I'm sure it happens to us as well. You know, when you see someone bring a friend... And that person dresses differently. You know, that, that person behaves differently. And then, you know, the temptation I have is to think, why did, why did Christian dress this way? How can a Christian act this way? See, the mistake I've made, the mistake I've made is I've assumed that the person, the friend, is Christian. Instead, we should assume that the person is someone who is you know, at the invitation of one of our members coming here and checking out. And the best thing I can do is to not make assumptions, but to go and welcome the person. And to acknowledge that, yes, he may be very different now. But remember what we learned from uh, Romans chapter 4. If justification is by faith, then it is not how that person is like me, how that person meets a certain standard that makes him deserving of salvation because none of us are deserving each one of us receive it only by faith in christ so a culture that pulls together as one number six a culture in which people teach one another a culture in which people teach one another so just a flip back one page in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll look at verse 11 to 12. Ephesians chapter 4. Just flip back one page or two, depending on how large the print in your Bible is. Verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Okay, we'll stop there. Now I want you to notice what Christ has given to his church. He's given okay, prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Now all these people, they share in common the gift of 
the word. There's some gift of teaching the Bible. And so you see the word uh, evangelist is there. And you know, that's the people who have the gift of doing evangelism. Like, so it is acknowledged yes, there's such a gift in the Bible, the gift of doing evangelism. And so because people know and see, hey, yes, yes, there is such a gift in the Bible. And so clearly, I don't have the gift. So, you know, clearly I don't. And so it must be I am, therefore, what is it? Excused. Excused from doing the work of evangelism since I don't have the gift. Because you see, you know, Christ gave such gifts and clearly I don't. And so I'm excused. Now, such a line of reasoning would be similar to someone saying, I also don't have the gift of stacking chairs. You know, I I do it so much more slowly than other people. So when it's time to stack chairs, I just won't stack chairs because I don't have the gifts to stack chairs. Okay, that is a kindergarten view of evangelism. Okay, the author Max Stahl says. Okay, look at why... Christ gave the gift of evangelism to some people, to the church. Okay, verse 12 says, to equip his people for works of service, that the body of Christ may be built up. So those who have the gift of evangelism is supposed to equip the rest of us so that we can do the works of service, which would definitely include evangelism. So if you don't have the gift of evangelism, it means that, okay, you don't have the responsibility of equipping the rest of us. Okay, that's fine. But those who have are to equip the rest of us so that being equipped, we can do the works of service, which is evangelism. Now, a practical way we can put this into practice is, you know, the announcement has been going out, and I know Nick has sent out the email about the upcoming Christianity Explored course that's happening next week, right? So I wonder when you, when you hear and when you see this course that's going to start soon, what happens in your mind? Okay, typically, I think what will happen is you think, okay, if... I happen to be in a conversation with a colleague or friend, family member, and the person is really eager to learn about Christianity. Then, you know, I'll connect. Yes, Christianity Explored, and my friend, okay, you know, I can invite my friend to come to this course. You know, great. So good that our church runs this regularly. But then for some of us, if, you know, it so happens in this season of our lives, we're not talking to anyone, no one around us is keen, to learn more about Jesus, then we will just acknowledge that the course is being run and we, you know, we might say a prayer for it, but then we would think that, what? It has nothing to do with me. Okay, now, in a culture of evangelism where people teach one another, there is another response possible. So let's say really, truly, in this season of your life, try as hard as you might, there is no one in your network that is seeking, wanting to know more. 
And so another response that you can have to Christianity Explored being run is, you can think, wouldn't it be good for me to go for the course so that I can learn? So that maybe one day as I learn, I could run this on a one-to-one setting with family, friend, colleague. Do you, do you see? It's a completely different uh, paradigm. Not just friend, non-Christian being brought to the course, but ah, this is a good opportunity for me to learn. Because here are people who have, you know, uh, to some degree, the gift of evangelism. Yes, and they're using it to reach out to our non-Christian friends. But I can also make use of the opportunity to come and to learn so that there is in future more of us who can run this course in a coffee shop, at our homes, etc., etc. This is a culture in which people teach one another, in which we want to learn from those who have the gifts. Not having the gift does not excuse us. We look to the people who have so that we can be equipped to do the works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. And built up in a sense, not just the people here are built up in Christ, but built up also in a sense of people being added to the body. So that some of the empty seats you see in front of you may one day be filled by God using some of us, people hearing the gospel and now being heirs of eternal life. Number seven, a culture that models evangelism. A culture that models evangelism. Now, flip forward in your Bibles a few pages to Philippians chapter 3. And you see in verse 17, Paul saying, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. It's a biblical command, right? To look at the examples God has given to us. Now, in all the ways, there's no perfect example, but in all the ways that they are obeying and following Jesus, we are to keep our eyes and to follow their example. And so in a culture of evangelism, there are those that are a bit further on in the journey, who have had more experience and who should model evangelism. And the rest of us should be keeping our eyes on them, learning from their model, from their example. And, uh, you know, particularly I want to appeal to those of us who have been given a role of leadership in this church family. It is our responsibility to model evangelism. We cannot just look to those who just have that inkling, that have the personality, that have the gift, only to do it. Those of us who are leaders must lead by modeling evangelism. How else will the others see and learn and be challenged? So it's not just, you know, we provide courses or we open up Christianity Explore. People come and learn. So it's not just having courses where we teach people how to share the gospel. 
It's not just courses where we teach people how to answer questions and then, okay, go out and do it. No, yes, we must equip, we must teach, and especially leaders must model so that people who have been filled with, you know, the theoretical knowledge can be uh, followed up by seeing it live in the flesh in action. And um, I just want to share about how, when I did it with one of my students, okay, he was in uh, his first year, first semester, so he was really green. And I said, okay, I want to do some, uh, you know, walk-up evangelism. Okay, who's, who's free to come with me? And so this student, first year guy, he was free and he came with me. And so we just, you know, went around. Uh, his job was just to keep quiet and, you know, watch how I do it. And so we got talking with this group of people and uh, it lasted an hour and it was, you know, quite an interesting conversation because the person was of a Hindu background. But after the conversation, I turned to Titus and I said, hey, so how, what do you think? First thing he said was, and I mean, this was, you know, slightly discouraging to me, but the first thing he said was, I don't think I could ever do this. So, you know, my hope was that, oh, okay, you know, through seeing it, I would, I would inspire him, I would, you know, cause him to be, ah, yes, this can be done. But the first thing he said was, I don't think I can do this. But recently, a few weeks ago, the Buddhist society was having a Buddhist awareness, you know, uh, week. And so I said to my students, okay, this is a perfect time for us to talk to Buddhists. Because they have, you know, put up the exhibition, they are willing, they are expecting people to come to them, to talk to them, to ask them questions. <clears throat> so I said, okay, all of you, <clears throat> excuse me, go and talk to your Buddhists. And so Titus went, and Titus took the longest time. I mean, we were, we were waiting for him to start Bible study, but he was gone for almost an hour. And then when Titus came back, I said, hey, why, why you took so long? Then he said, well, I just, you know, I wanted to be sure to listen to them, so I listened to what they had to say. But after I understood, I just said it. You just said what? I just said it. I just told them about Jesus. See, so a few months later, Titus is, he's just saying it. He's just saying it. And I hope to some degree, him seeing the model of evangelism that he has uh, encouraged him to just say it, to just do it. Number eight. <clears throat> A culture in which people who are sharing their faith are celebrated. So you remember the responsive reading? <clears throat> Paul, Paul affirmed the work of Timothy and Epaphroditus. He acknowledge their sacrifice, their service in the Lord Jesus, their work in the gospel. See, Paul knew how to honour and affirm people who were doing uh, the work of Christ, serving the gospel. And so how it could look like in our church is, you know, the, the last couple of weeks, you know, I don't, I mean, for various reasons, one of the common announcements that has been going out is, you know, asking people to sign up for the beverage and cleaning roster. Now, it would be very sad, right, if there was a new person that visited our church and 
for the weeks that he came, the announcement that he kept hearing is beverage and cleaning, beverage and cleaning, beverage and cleaning. I mean, it would be very sad if he thought, I mean, what this church is on about is the beverage and cleaning. And so, no, what we are on about is people walking by faith, obeying the Great Commission and using their gifts, their opportunities in their weakness and inadequacies, but trusting God and sharing the gospel. And so how it could look like is, you know, like during the service, we give a bit of time and we say, okay, anyone here, you know, this week you managed to have a conversation about Jesus? Anyone? Oh, okay, I see a hand there. Um, you want to come forward? Thank you, Hui Li. Thank you. It's amazing. I didn't expect anyone to, to put up their hand. Okay, Hui Li. It was just an example, but okay. So this, is, this could be how it works, okay? Anyone? And then someone says, yeah, I do. And it happens to be Hui Li this week. Okay. Shared with her that as a Christian, I meditate too, but in a different way. So instead of listening to myself and playing over the condemning and anxious thoughts, I talk to myself and I meditate on God's promises and character, how He is kind, how He is powerful, how He will give me grace sufficient for the task. He is not cruel or absent. He is always with me, working good in me and for me. But it doesn't always sit well with her. So last week, another friend joined us for lunch and we were chatting about relationships. So um, they don't really think highly of marriage or of having children. Having a pet, pet dog like dog and cat gives them about the same kind of relational satisfaction. So I just commented you know, some of my thoughts to them. like, But I thought a dog isn't quite like a human being. Dog cannot listen to you, communicate to you, like challenge you, advise you, or encourage you the same way a human being can. Uh, dog is just not an equal. So she asked me, what about my relationship with God that I tell her about? Because God doesn't communicate uh, with me directly either. And I was very excited. Oh yeah, you gave me an opportunity to talk. So I said, hey, but God does speak to me through His Word. I see His character reviewed through His interactions with real people in history. I see Jesus' death on the cross for the church, for me. And I know about His commands, how He guides and how He protects His people. I receive challenge, rebuke, encouragement and comfort. Uh, then she probably wanted to change the topic. So she pointed to a chameleon on the tree and said, Hey, I see the chameleon is changing color. Then I just thought, okay, it's interesting. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then I thought a bit more uh, during the day. Then I realized that perhaps I shouldn't be so eager to speak. Maybe I could have uh, continued the conversation with her uh, more using questions. Maybe I could have asked her, If you were God, how might you communicate with your people? Uh, if she says, hmm, maybe I would definitely be clearer and more direct in speaking to them. Then I can ask her again, then why do you think God isn't clear in communicating with us? Why isn't God as direct um, in his communication with us today? Uh, given her background and knowledge of the Bible, I think she might remember the fall. Uh, perhaps she will be more engaged or maybe not. But I do hope to chat with them again and try this out. <clears throat> Thank you, Hui Li. Yeah, so the way it will work is um, we ask people the night before and then they agree to do it. 
And then, uh, so we, she's not sharing a so-called successful evangelistic attempt. And when we say successful, we mean that the person in hearing became Christian. I mean, that's what we, we understand by a successful evangelistic attempt. Now, I want to, again, try and change the paradigm. A successful evangelistic attempt is where we faithfully and clearly manage to communicate something of Jesus and the gospel. That is success. It is me conveying the message. It is me pointing to Jesus. It is not me seeing someone converted. It is not me winning the argument. Because the opening of eyes, the granting of faith, that is what God does. That's His job. And my job, He makes us understand, it is just faithfully, prayerfully, depending on Him, but communicating. So if we have a chance to communicate something of the gospel, that is successful witnessing. And so it is very encouraging when we ask for stories and there are people coming forward and saying, yeah, yeah, I had this attempt, this opportunity. And as Hui Li shared, after she did it, she realized, oh, maybe I could have done it better. You see, this is how we get better with practice. We realize, okay, in this situation, maybe I should have asked a question instead. And then the next time it happens, we are that much more prepared. And so just hearing, we are encouraged just listening, we are also um, taught and equipped as well. So a culture where uh, people who are doing it are celebrated. Number nine. A culture that knows how to affirm and celebrate new life. On the same page of your Bible probably, Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Quite interesting, I didn't realize I allow you to have minimal page flipping. Colossians 1, verse 3 and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul knew how to affirm new believers. He heard that the church in Colossians had been planted and was growing, and he was thankful to God for their faith. And how did, how did the church in Colossae get planted? How did they learn of Jesus? You look at verse 7. Paul says, You learnt it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. So Epaphras faithfully taught, proclaimed Jesus and the church in Colossae, by God's grace, God's work, began to grow and have faith. New life began to happen in that city. Now as a church, we need to know how to celebrate and to affirm new life in Christ the right way. Let me tell you what is a, a wrong way. The okay, wrong way is where we run an evangelistic event and where emphasis is put at the end of asking people to raise their hands. You know, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Right? At the end, you know, maybe the preacher goes, okay, all eyes closed, all eyes closed. And then, you know, Brian is on the keyboard, 
playing some moving tune. And then the preacher says, okay, you know, I'm, I, the, the, God is at work in this room and I know some of you have been touched. If you have been touched by the message and you want to make a commitment to Christ, okay, no one is no one looking at you. Just raise your hand, just raise your hand. And then there was such a meeting, uh, one of my friends told me, where the preacher said, ah, very good, I see a few hands coming up. Praise God, praise God. And then this friend of ours opened his eyes and, eh? no one won. <laughs> Yeah, see, the, the, the wrong way to affirm new life in Christ is putting the emphasis on the decision the person has made. And there are some, you know, some groups where they are taught, share the gospel, and as quickly as you can, just get the person to pray the sinner's prayer with you. And then they think just by the person saying, praying the sinner's prayer, Hallelujah, we've got a Christian. Now that is not the biblical understanding of conversion. Now the way that I like to you know, tell people and teach people to do it is, even when people say they want to be Christian, you should say, okay, no, 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 don't, don't, don't. You know, not laughing, I'm shocked, it's too shocked. When someone wants to be Christian, you should say don't. Don't in the sense that you want to make sure that they truly understand. You want to make sure that they have looked at the commands and demands of Christ clearly for themselves. They, they have had a chance to consider the cost of following Jesus. And have they truly come to understand, are they able to articulate how it is that Jesus saves them? Only then do you cautiously lead them, teaching them what it means to become a Christian which is to submit to Jesus as Lord because He is Lord and to rely on what He has done in His death and resurrection on our behalf. And then even then you don't go, yes, you know, you are definitely and etc. etc. Instead, a good thing to say is, you know, based on you know, what you've articulated, based on... Um, how you understand the gospel and this, this commitment that I see you're making, I'm quite certain that you have become a Christian. But the greatest certainty is whether in 10 years' time you are still holding on to Jesus. You know, that is whether, that's the test of whether you are truly a Christian or not. That going forwards in the long term, the person is bearing fruit, showing the change in his life. So the way to affirm and celebrate new life is not to place the emphasis on the beginning, but to place emphasis on the person persevering and going on, keeping on in Christ. But we do celebrate. We must get excited when we hear of someone coming to faith. We, will, we must go, hallelujah! But we must also go, okay, let's prayerfully see. Hallelujah! But prayerfully, let's see. Number 10. A culture that does not shy away from ministry that is risky and dangerous. Okay, this one you've got to flip a few more pages, but go to Matthew chapter 5.
Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. In a sermon on the mount, Jesus says, <clears throat> You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So he says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. Now I think what he says here needs to be linked to what Jesus said just a few verses earlier. In verse 11, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. You see, if we only do ministry within our comfort zones, if we only do ministry within some safe confines, then we run the risk of losing our saltiness. Because everywhere in the Bible, the people of God took risks for the sake of following God, for the sake of the cause of God, they found themselves in sometimes risky and dangerous positions. I mean, when uh, you know, we studied Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, when they did not want to bow down to that statue, they put themselves in risky and dangerous position. When Esther was willing to go to the king and to try and save her people, right? at the end she said, yes, if I perish, I perish. And Paul constantly found himself in risky and dangerous situations for the sake of Christ. If we only minister within safe confines and within our comfort zones, we run the risk of losing our saltiness. Okay, there's more to be said, but I'm running out of time. I do want to say that the phrase that I've used constantly throughout these two talks is, I hope this is something we long for. Okay, but I know the reality is that maybe at most only a handful of us here truly long for this. Okay, and I want to say, I want to confess that in preparing this, you know, there was a part of me that went, what's the point? What's the point? I mean, there's only a few people who, who you know, genuinely long for this anyway. But then the Lord rebuked me because He reminded me what we've been studying in Romans. We've been looking at the Gospel and Paul in chapter 1, verse 16 of Romans says, the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And when he says that, he doesn't just mean that he will get us and one billion years later we will be in heaven. But the gospel is the power that will actually conform us into greater Christ-likeness. The gospel is the power that, yes, at this moment now, yes, many of you may be, you've listened to all that's been said and it is completely not registering. In fact, you long that this church would not be a culture where there is evangelism because it would be difficult, because you have to meet new people, because you've got to cross personal boundaries, 
painful uh, lines. But if the gospel is the power of God, one thing that will happen in this church is that we will proclaim the gospel, we will trust in the power of God in the gospel. So it may be a long journey, but I trust that as we proclaim the gospel, the gospel will do its work in each of our lives. So that as we see and appreciate and grasp more deeply who Jesus is, just what God has done for us, by His grace, that culture of evangelism will be formed. To Him be glory.